following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And that was Weird Al Yankovic with Eat It. So very appropriate for this morning. Uh, you are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with 2XX Behind the Lions on Community Radio 98.3 FM. So it seems logical with our recent shows focusing on the nurturing of food producing gardens and green spaces that we do a show about how to prepare and cook delicious fare in a manner which supports our food sovereignty all the way from the organic green earth to our kitchens and plates. Joining us this morning to chat about an exciting new project, the Container Kitchen Co-op, is ex-farmer come foodie advocate and owner of the Scrumpter's Garden Catering, Ruth Gaha-Morris. So welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, you have quite an interesting uh, background here. You work across multiple platforms, bringing producers and consumers closer together within the local sustainable food systems. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps what led you to um, this new enterprise? Yes. Um, I have worked over the years as a, as a cook, as a caterer, and also running my own small farm many years ago and providing fresh produce to my community. When I moved to Canberra and I needed to live again in the in the suburbs, I guess, I I really felt disconnected from local food and I wanted to find ways that I could access it more for my own health and for my own cooking. And I um I got involved with a group called Southern Harvest. I moved out to Bungendore where we didn't have a local, an easily accessible local food market and Southern Harvest was working to try and bring local producers together to have a farmer's market in the community and to put together food boxes. So I got involved with them and I have since been, I, I worked on the committee for a while and then I started working to manage the farmer's market and develop a produce box scheme where we aggregate local produce and put it together into boxes for people in Canberra and around the local region. And um, more recently have been looking at the kitchen program to to help people have, have access to a commercial kitchen where they can maybe value add their produce, uh, cook ready meals for the community to sell. Um, and yeah, so to to allow people a community space where they they have access to a commercial kitchen that um, then means that they're not they can access a commercial market rather than just home cooking. That's fantastic. Now, Ruth, can I just ask you? Um, are you very close to your phone, or do you have a mic on right now? I am using a hand free. Would it be oh, okay. better if I just use my phone? Yeah, we're just having a little bit of uh, feedback on the line there. So that'd be great. Sorry about that. And uh, anyway, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about too is also you had a catering business called the Scrumpter's Garden, which was about taking unloved food from local producers. So it was food that would have otherwise been thrown out. Yes. Um, so it was a combination of that, what I had excess in my own garden that I wanted to value add and sell back to my community or, or um, at the market. And also I found there was a lot of producers that would have, say, a bumper crop of something that they just couldn't sell, like um, 
turnips. This year it's been turnips. There's been so many turnips at the market. And um, and creating a product with that, a value-added product that keeps it for longer and means that it could then be the producers can then sell it in other ways. And is that what people would call ugly food? You know, there's a whole movement in France about, you know, making sure that ugly food isn't wasted, food that doesn't look perfect, you know, food that's misshapen, that's, there's nothing wrong with it, it's still fresh, it just doesn't look perfect on the shelf. Yeah, often it is that ugly food, the so-called ugly food that doesn't sell at the market, that then it, it's perfectly good food. And um, if we turn it into something that's a little bit prettier, people will then buy it, yeah. To make it into a nice meal, for instance. Yes, yes. Or a pickle that um, doesn't matter what it looks like because it's right. in a jar. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's a fantastic idea. Is that something that you pioneered or is there movement for um, taking unloved food in Australia and or in the ACT and I think um, doing something with a, it? Yes, I think there is a number of people doing this sort of thing around Australia. I don't know so much around ACT, but... There's, I'm, I've seen go past a group that's called um, the Rotten Food Box or, or the Rotten Fruit Box or something where they uh, use fruit that is not saleable essentially because it might have a spot or it doesn't look pretty and turn it into dried fruit and sell it. Mm. which is something we actually do with our produce box scheme as well. That's fantastic. I saw an episode on uh, Gardening Australia recently where there was a, a gentleman with a very big food producing garden who was just actually showing everybody how to take all of this, you know, past its best food and like things, green tomatoes that hadn't ripened and all that sort of stuff and actually, you know, pickling it and turning it into all sorts of preserved foods. Yes, yes. And those are often the foods as well. When, when fresh food is a little bit short, we have all the preserved fruit and vegetables which we can then use mm. in our in our produce boxes, in our cooking. And also I think there's a lot of just well not a lot, a little bit of need for education around that for consumers, um, about there are ways of using your produce that when you can't get fresh produce that the the subscribers in our produce box schemes are now getting used to having dried fruit or pickled vegetables when we don't have enough fresh to fill their produce boxes. Oh, that's fantastic. That'd be like Christmas for me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, also one of the things I you know, realised is that we used to do this as sort of a very normal part of preparing and preserving food in, you know, sort of pre-commercial supermarket days. This was a normal part of what the family did. They, you know, they preserved food so that it would um, last them all through. So when the growing season was over and you've got, you know, autumn, winter, and you're not able to produce anything fresh. In Australia, we're a bit lucky, but, you know, in colder climes, there's really not much growing in a frozen soil. And this was what kept everybody going. This is what kept the family fed. This is true. And I I think we're seeing uh, a movement back to that especially in the last few months with the COVID and people realising that their food supply chains might fail them, their long food supply chains, and looking at more local, sustainable ways of accessing food and produce in the region. Mm. And you're involved with the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. Could you give us a little bit of background in that? Because I think we've already touched on that, but it sounds like it's something that um, is probably in alignment with what we've just discussed. Yes, yeah, so the Food Sovereignty Alliance is, is, is the farmer advocacy, advocacy group, but also consumers. It's also about people being act, able to access food in their communities, uh, local food, sustainable food, and food that's culturally appropriate for them. And I have worked with them for the last couple of years as on, on, on the committee. Um, 
work a lot around legislation for farmers to be able to sell into their local communities, scale appropriate legislation for small farmers and um, connecting communities with their farmers so they're able to access food. Yeah, that's terrific. And um, with food sovereignty, is that something people can sort of become empowered to take control of themselves and like their own, own communities? Like that is a, maybe a movement that started, as you said, when people staying home during COVID, they're actually um, realising that there's a lot more engagement they can have in their food rather than just waiting for some big agro producer at the supermarket to stick it on the shelf. Yes, and, and I think there is lots of small groups that that do this sort of thing in various communities all over Australia, like the Southern Harvest Group here in um, ACT and South East New South Wales and like the Sage Group down towards the coast a little bit and the Scarpa Group down towards Bega. They're all groups that are working on this issue, uh, on this um, bringing consumers and farmers together to be able to access short food supply chains in their community. And this would also be about um, maybe something called the 100-mile diet or the 50-mile diet where you're trying to keep food locally produced in circulation? Yes, definitely. Um, the, the more local our food supply is, the safer it is, the easier it is to access, the, you know, the more secure it's going to be in a crisis. Mm. And, and more seasonally appropriate too where we're not importing things that are grown out of season. Definitely, and there's a lot of research around showing that that kind of diet is much healthier for people. Yeah, cool. Um, so, Scotty here, how are you, Ruth? I'm all right, Scotty. I can barely hear you, though. Oh, really? Okay. I'll turn myself up a little bit. Um, yes. The, uh, I guess the project that, um, the most recent project that you've, you've been involved with is a uh, community kitchen cooperative, and this sort of... Uh, fits right in with, uh, with all of the things we've been talking about so far. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, so it's a really good... I, I saw it as a really good opportunity for um, our growers, our producers, our value adders, this fully equipped commercial kitchen going up for sale um, and allow it, it would allow people access to make something more with their food. The people who want to take the fresh produce that might be in excess and create um, preserves, create ready-made meals, um, do pop-up kitchen, cafes, restaurants, it would, it would be a perfect opportunity for um, people who don't have the resources to buy or rent uh, a commercial kitchen on a regular basis to do these activities could become part of a cooperative that would have community access to a kitchen to allow them to expand their business. Mm -hmm. And and is this, uh, this is an existing kitchen? Yes, it's an existing kitchen um, in a container that is on a community um, owned enterprise out at Canberra City Farm. It uh, there's a lot of enterprises out there that would all benefit from the use of a community kitchen and would um, that are working towards bringing this project to fruition. So Canberra City Farm and Southern Harvest being the two main ones that are out there at the moment that would use a commercial kitchen. And a number of small cooks, chefs and producers, New South Wales producers that can't 
sell their home value-added products into ACT markets need a commercial kitchen in ACT where they can um, value-add their fresh produce to sell it to markets in ACT specifically will benefit from this as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's some sort of funny rule in the ACT, isn't there? Uh, yeah, the, the food safety rules in New South Wales allow for small amounts of products to be done in a certified home kitchen and sold through markets, but this doesn't apply in the ACT. They need to be done in a in a commercial kitchen. Hmm. And is that just any commercial kitchen? Or? A registered commercial kitchen in the ACT. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's a very important word there, registered. Yeah, and in yes. the ACT, yeah. So it's yes. pretty specific, isn't it? So we've, we've got a ton of uh, small holdings around the ACT and many of those have, have started producing stuff and if they just cook their stuff up at home, they're not they're selling it illegally in the ACT. Um, I think they can do... They can sell it four markets per year in the ACT. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's not much, though. No. No. And it's things like, I believe, there's certain ingredients that require um, a registered commercial kitchen where there might be other types of food produced that are um, maybe their rules aren't as stringent? Yeah, so there's, um, especially around uh, so-called dangerous foods like meat products and dairy products, definitely need a commercial kitchen to be able to sell, um, sell those products. Uh, it's, it, it, it's different. It changes... Every single council around the ACT has different legislations around what you can produce in your own kitchen and how much and where you can sell it. it it's quite a minefield to get into. <laughs> I don't think I could... Um, I, I, I definitely don't know it all off the top of my head. I've been following a lot of the um, local no- community notice boards and I often see, you know, sort of... Um, home-based producers asking about commercial kitchen space because they've just come up with a product that has, say, for instance, one ingredient that makes it important to have a commercial kitchen. Like, they'll say, oh, I've now got this with cream in it, so I have to have a commercial kitchen to produce it. Mm. So it's um, definitely the demand for commercial kitchen seems to be very high. So you've also answered a question for me, Ruth, was that I was wondering why it was called the container kitchen. Now I know. (laughs) Because <laughs> I was thinking, oh, container kitchen. I wonder what you're doing there. <laughs> There's lots yeah. of containers in there. Yeah. <laughs> Every sort of container you could want. Yes, yeah. containers within containers. <laughs> Sounds like our container or kitchen. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so the um, the community kitchen concept that I was familiar with from some of the co-housing developments and um, sort of shared kitchen facilities there. Is this something that's been around for a long time and, and sort of there's been a real need and that's where it's come from to, to create this? I honestly don't know. Um, I, I just saw the need in our community from, from the producers that I work with every day and, um, and also a number of small um, value-adders like myself who do some cooking that they can sell at the market from a registered home kitchen in New South Wales, but there is no way that I could do, I could expand that and sell ready-made meals or something like that that would be really important to me. And when I do a catering job, I need to hire a commercial kitchen in order to do that, So, um, which is often really, really expensive. And I, I just saw the need in our community, which is why I... I started running, well, trying to get people involved with this project. Uh, and the only way I could see it happening was a cooperative, a community cooperative, because 
everyone I know that would need the use of this does not have the resources to buy it outright. Mm. Now, is the equipment specifically different in a commercial kitchen? Is it like this commercial grade equipment or is it just that it's got to be inspected and registered? Uh, yeah, it, it's more the environment, the way it's um, tiled and linoed and painted and so that it's all really easily cleaned and safe. Um, monitoring temperatures in fridges, having a big stove that can have big pots for for catering, having appropriate water temperatures for washing, hand washing things. And yeah, it, it's more the safety aspects rather than the specific equipment. Yeah, I remember there was um, a friend of mine started up a, a food truck and I mean, not exactly a commercial kitchen, but in that sense of producing kitchen in the commercial environment. And they were saying there had to be a ratio of sinks to food preparing surfaces and things like that. Is that what we're talking about? Like the number of sinks has to um, yep. you know, equate to the number of food preparing surfaces. So it gets quite specific. Yes. Um, so the, the sinks is an important one, whether the floors can be cleaned and the walls can be cleaned easily, whether their food can be stored appropriately in various areas of the kitchen um, whether it can be prepared in one space and wash up in another space that's very separated. So there's no cross-contamination, kind of that sort of thing, yeah. right? Okay. And yeah. with the, um, obviously, using this, you know, sort of hygiene practice, does it mean that the people using the kitchen have to have some training before they can go in to use it? Uh, yes, generally. In ACT, most people that are producing food... Um, or selling food have to have a uh, either a basic food handling or advanced food handling certificate in order to do that anyway. So, um, and most people, as part of their business, will have that already. Right. So it's not just Mama's bake at home a pies and she's coming in to use the commercial ovens. It's that um, it's more around about the sort of practice of of, of safe food preparation. Definitely. Yes. Um, I guess I, I hadn't actually thought of that part of it because that's something that um, as a caterer I have as part of my business is that I have all of my food safety certification, but people can do that online quite easily. So it's still really accessible to the home cook who wants to just do something a little bit bigger to sell. They can easily do an online food safety course. Mm. And if they um, want to rent the kitchen, are they going to need to show documentation that they've done these um, certificates and training? So is that, is that st- stipulation around? Or maybe I'm jumping ahead here, Ruth. But I, was, I think you are. Yeah. I don't, I, like <laughs> we haven't even put the the group together. <laughs> here I am. I'm all, it's all in my head. It's already running up and running and going full steam. <laughs> oh um, well, look, I need a lead if, if you're interested. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll let Scotty chat. I'm monopolising you for a minute. I'll go back to Scotty. He's got some great questions for you. Okay. Ah, no, they were good. They were good. I hadn't thought of those ones. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Tell us the story of this particular mm. kitchen because a, a container kitchen mm. doesn't just sit there, does it? It gets to move around and have a life of its own. Yeah, um, I believe this was one of the kitchens that was part of the kitchen container village thing that was down at Kingston a number of years ago. There was food pop-ups, like little restaurant pop-ups down there. Um, I don't know a lot about it. This is a story that um, I've been told about this particular one. And then a number of years ago, it was moved out to Canberra City Farm as a a, a private enterprise. and was available for rent for people who wanted to do similar things to what we've been talking about. 
and but the person who owns it is ready to move on and just doesn't have the capacity to maintain it anymore. So it's up for sale. And it did have a bit of um, uh, uh, interesting background. I believe there was um, an incident which meant that the kitchen was shut for a while. There was a, a, um, a kitchen incident, or maybe you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know a lot about it. Um, there was an issue with uh, an explosion. I think people would have seen it in the news uh, last year, early last year. I think it was twenty eighteen. Um, I think. Yeah. Oh, was it that far yeah. away? Yeah. Um, where uh, I, I don't know the end result of that. I actually believe it's still being investigated, but the kitchen has been fully renovated and fixed and recertified since then, so it's in proper working order. Mm. And I mean, being a movable kitchen, is this like how's it going to um, set up? Is it like sort of like a food truck where it can set up pretty quickly, or is it going to live at Canberra City Farm semi permanently? Yeah, um, I. I would say, say that it's quite a permanent fixture out there these days, um, and it's all it's all set up to use right now, and it's being sold as it is, um, even with the equipment in it. So it's ready to go. And um, is this kitchen using the Australian Community Kitchens model, or is this something that you've been developing as you go? Because I I do um, know that there was a model developed in Victoria, apparently, by Peninsula Health in 2004, which was to sort of create incentive to to build community kitchens, um, and that the program sort of set up this model for other people to use, and it even expanded internationally, um, I think, to New Zealand and to Singapore as well. It was so successful. Thank you. I didn't know about that. I will go and investigate that. Um, it's really this project in its infancy. Um, it, it's just we are trying to get a group of interested people together to develop the idea. So um, what sort of interested people would you like to come and get in touch with you? Well, those of us that have had some really uh, some initial meetings have thought about that a little bit and of course, the people who are able to, uh, who want to use the kitchen for their business and able to invest a small amount of money, if we had enough of those who wanted to be involved, uh, we would have enough money to buy the kitchen, say 10 to 20 individuals who wanted to invest a small amount of money to, um, to get the project, to buy the kitchen and get the project going. I... I think we really need someone who is motivated and enthusiastic to lead the co-op development project because um, I don't have the capacity. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea and I'm really enthusiastic, but I don't have the capacity to lead it, which is why it's sort of stalled because we haven't found that leader yet who, who has time and energy to bring all of the ideas together. And we've also looked at the idea that Maybe some people would like to invest in the co-op and and have it as a return investment model as well, but but they're not using it essentially for their own business. They're um, they're using it as an as an investment mm. and a, a renting out their share of the time to others who may not want to be part of the co-op but mm. want to use the kitchen. So we've looked at a number of different ideas. We just really need to consolidate those ideas mm. and get get it off the ground. So with the co-op idea, that would be all the people who invest in the co-op, then their return would be in use of the kitchen and access to the kitchen. Is that the idea? Yes. 
one of them. One of them, yeah, one of them. I think Scotty knows a lot more about co-ops than me. Yes, he's the co-op king round here. Yeah. <laughs> you can't have one of those. It's no, okay. a tautology. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a holarchy, right? <laughs> yeah. The co-op go-to person for information perhaps, about that. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, look, I reckon it's fantastic. Um, great initiative. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how many people have you got involved in the in the planning? about the core group is about 10 to 15 people at the moment that have had some really um, some, some initial meetings to discuss different ideas and um, I'd like to take it out to a wider community now and you know here we are talking about <laughs> so there is a wider community now that's hearing about the project um, we also have a commitment from the owner, the current owner of the kitchen, to allow us to develop this idea um, and and um, buy the kitchen from them when we're ready. Yeah, right. So there's actually no pressing sort of time looming on over you. No. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. That makes it feasible just in itself, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool, and I guess if the uh, if the owner's friendly and talking to you, you'll probably be able to get numbers and and business information and stuff, which yes, you can well, use in your plans. Like, yeah, they would like to be involved in the co-op going forward. So oh, great. That, that's an advantage. Hmm. And the common things in the kitchen, like for instance, the use of electricity. Um, maybe there's um, supplies that are used by everybody. Um, is that come out of as like a, like a co-op fund, or, or how would that that work? I would assume so. I would assume we would have to set up a fund to um, put money back towards maintenance and um, utilities for the kitchen. Definitely. So very very interesting stuff. Um, so with people who are interested in using it who don't want to be part of the co-op, would that set up like a, a, a booking system or would they, they have to make some kind of investment? Like, you know, you see a lot of people looking for commercial kitchen space, um, but they only want to use it maybe once a month or once every two months and they're not um, maybe not prepared yet at this stage to become part of the co-op. Are, are they sort of um, still eligible to get involved or would they really need to be a co-op member? I, I, I would assume so. I think... Like I said, it's really all in the development stage at the moment, but um, it, it should be available to everyone to be able to use. That we've got, to, we would aim to find a model that allows for investment for co-op members' use and also for external use. Because I'm seeing a lot of great ideas for. Um, potential to offer workshops and training there too so you're being yeah. at Canberra City Farm you know there's so many great things that happen out there already and even things like you know I love the idea of you taking your unloved food and you know, showing people what to do with it I could see that would be a fantastic idea out there so there's um, potential for it to become maybe um, a resource for training and education as well. Yes um, that's definitely part of the idea. Um, I used to have access to uh, a training space where I could teach preserving and and I don't have access to that anymore and I'd love to be able to start running those courses again and I know other people as well would who would like to do similar things. Yeah, every time I go to a, a Canberra City Farm event and there's some fabulous food there, I want to know how it's made because <laughs> you've got some amazing producers out there. Yeah, yeah. now I reckon cooking's a really good analogy for, for building a co-op. Mm. So I guess the ingredients that you've got now, you'd be looking at 
your member ingredients would be uh, just general members who aren't investing. You'd have investing members, you'd have kitchen use members, and you'd probably have, I don't know, you might have institutional members like Southern Harvest and uh, City Every Farm. Year. Um, Food Sovereignty Alliance. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. And then you've just got people who would like to walk in off the street and hire it for a one-off thing. Mm. Mm. And then I guess the other ingredients are what you want to do with it. So uh, an investment, divestment opportunity, um, a bar for outdoor gigs. You could uh, have ethnic groups cooking up batches of hard-to-buy foods, cooking schools, catering for off-site deliveries. Events, perfect spot for events out there. I remember the Permaculture Festival went down really well out there, didn't it, a few yeah, years ago? Even in that, well, it was a day like this, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Windy yeah, and you rainy. Can't, you can't stop those perma- permaculture people. <laughs> you can't, you can't. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, processing seasonal foods, there's tons of stuff. So what, you're at the stage where you've got an ingredients list and you need to figure out a recipe, so... That's exactly right. I guess, um, yeah, if people are out there and they've... The beauty of co-ops and the things that really got me intrigued with it is that you have to use your business imagination, is what I call it. So you can't just do a cookie-cutter thing. Each one's different. It's got that different list of ingredients, and you have to figure out your own recipe. So it's um, it's quite fun, actually. So, yeah, I would encourage anybody out there who's, you know, whether or not you've got experience, um, yeah, we need all types to come in. Definitely. And we have set up a... Um, uh, an email address for people who would like more information or to get involved. Um, is it all right for me to give that up? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll give it yeah. out again at the end just to make sure people get it down. Well, it's called the HGM community, which is the Homegrown Me community at gmail.com. So HGM community at yep. gmail.com. That's it. Wonderful. And do you have any sort of social media page or anything else up at the moment? Or is it still too early for that? Yeah, it's still too early for that. We've got an email address. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's doing well because you've got to have someone to read it, right? Yeah. So what sort of size is this kitchen? Because, you know, we're talking shipping container when you say container. Like I I wasn't aware of the pop-up at Kingston, so I'm just trying to visualise how big this is and what sort of space it's in. Um, So it's like a long galley it's about 40 foot long. Okay. Um, it, it's sort of got a walk-in alcove and then you go into the main kitchen, you've got banks of fridges and, and um, work benches and then down towards the end is sink and stove. So just like a big long galley. So is it... Um on a trailer, like is it on wheels, or is it actually no. sta- stationary? So it would need um, to be transported on on the back of a, a trailer or something like that if it has to move. If, if it were to move, but it's um, it's perfectly happy where it is, and Canberra City Farm are happy to keep it there as well. <laughs> so I, I can't I'm, see us moving it in the future. Yeah, I'm imagining maybe some kitchen gardens popping up around it out there. It does have um, that's already started. So there's some raised garden beds and some frames for little round houses under which to put you know tables and chairs and in the past it has been used for functions out at Canberra City Farm where people have sat and um, had a, a dinner or a lunch and it's also near the Jerobombora wetland so that's a really beautiful environment for people to uh, there was a group that was doing some 
uh, evening suppers with uh, the wetlands where you got to walk around the wetlands and then have a supper at the from the homegrown kitchen. Oh, that's beautiful. There's like so much potential for this. I mean, I yeah. think it's not only is it serving a community need for production, but it's bringing community together, you know, through social events. This is brilliant. Definitely, definitely. It's got a huge potential for all of those activities. Yeah. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about the site that it's on there. We, we've said Canberra City Farm many, many times, all of us, but what is the Canberra City Farm? Well, Canberra City Farm is out uh, Dairy Road in Fishwick near the wetlands, uh, so sort of between the big industrial area out there at um, Dairy Road and then the wetlands. In between that is Canberra City Farm. It used to be an old dairy farm historically um, and it's got the actual Canberra City Farm. has got some community garden plots where people rent their own garden space if they don't have garden space where they live. It's got um, Canberra Heritage chickens are out there and Global Warm Worming, who are worm farms, who do um, recover compost around Canberra and turn it into... Uh, so food scraps and turn it into good compost via worms. And there's ACT beekeepers. The Canberra City Farm itself has a demonstration gardens and orchard and vineyard and a little education centre. Sea Change are building a demonstration uh, super shed, of which is a super insulated, um, converting one of the sheds that were out there into a super insulated, essentially tiny house, but it's a shed to demonstrate a whole lot of uh, energy efficient technology in buildings. Uh, there's the kitchen and there's the Southern Harvest Association have some... Uh, shipping container cool rooms and packing space out there for their produce boxes. Um, I'm sure I'm missing someone. Oh, the Department of Broccoli have a market garden out there. They're a local producer and they do mostly garlic and some other vegetables. Um, I think that's about it. There's quite a few enterprises out there at the moment and it's really worth going and having a look Mm. if you haven't been out there before. Yeah, right. Are there any particular days when it would be good to show up or...? Oh, I think have a look on the um, Canberra City Farm website. Mm. They have a list of dates where there's open days and uh, uh, gatherings where people can go. And especially with COVID at the moment, I think it's important to probably check on exactly what days they have open at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> I like the, the super shed. It's like a passive house, but it's a passive shed, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. It's a passive tiny house shed. <laughs> yeah, we've had a couple of the people you've mentioned on the show before. We had um, Sid Riley from um, Global Warming, Worming. I always say Global Warming, Global Me Worming. Too. And we had Sea Change on here not long ago, so they were sharing um, what they were doing out at Canberra City Farm. It was just brilliant. Yeah, there's so much going on out there. It's an amazing place to be involved with. Hmm. So Southern Harvest to, oh, well, let's actually, let, let's not go to Southern Harvest just yet. Let's go to Food Sovereignty. Um, I know you've, you've done a fair bit of work with the Food Sovereignty Alliance in the past. Um, what, what's Food Sovereignty? Um, I guess essentially it is access to the food that you choose. <laughs> so having sovereignty over your food choices and and um, also advocating for others to be able to grow and produce food in in a manner that is uh, safe and sustainable and culturally appropriate. 
This would be a bit like um, we had um, Arian uh, on here before about a seed um, collecting, and she was talking about seed sovereignty as well. Which is also an enormous, enormous uh, project at the moment that she's doing. It. It's wonderful. And, and food sovereignty is very closely associated with seed sovereignty. They're not going to be able to... Um, be separated, I think, in the near future. Yeah. Or, yeah, as we talked about with RN, we've got this you know, great risk of losing all of our heritage seeds with the monopolisation of crops, you know, just to produce higher yields, and we've taken away diversity from that food chain. So is that similar with food sovereignty, when we're, we're losing just uh, maybe some of our knowledge around um, the food growing and producing? Definitely, and it goes all the way back to the Indigenous knowledge of the food of this country, that um, so much of it has been lost through colonisation and um, the, it, we are seeing more recently just in uh, the probably the legislation around farming has um, made it really, really difficult for small producers to be able to grow appropriately for their region and serve their local markets because of the huge burden of legislation that's designed for industrial farming. Mm, yeah, I think Karula Farm had a bit of trouble out there. Um, they ran into that problem, didn't they? Definitely. They, with their um, poultry farming, just be, they were on the edge of the Sydney Water catchment area and I think it was for the Sydney Water catchment area, you can't have more than one poultry <laughs> on one, a farm, one chuck. <laughs> one chuck without a really big process that could have cost them up to $100,000 to get a special um, development application yeah. to have poultry in, that, in the Sydney water catchment area, which, um, which the big poultry producers are able to do because they have those kind of resources. Mm. And I guess it's only the big poultry producers that really need it too. If they're in a big shed operation, there's mm. this massive concentration of nutrients which mm. becomes poisonous mm. to the exactly. river and, and causes a big problem. Whereas in a small system where poultry is on pasture, that is never going to be a problem because... Uh, the waste, the manures don't get concentrated and there aren't huge amounts of chemical runoff for treatment of um, disease. Treatment of birds in in, 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 in a confined space. Mm, Putting in a a well-lined, huge concrete bloody slurry pond makes absolutely (laughs) no sense on pastured chickens. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes. So are there many laws like that? Are Are there sort of, I guess they've been put in place to contain the uh, the overscaled industrial farming model, but they're really affecting small farmers? Yes. Um, in recent years, there's been, especially like with veggie farmers, um, there was a number of, of food-borne illness outbreaks around uh, washed salad greens and uh, like spinach leaves and things like that, which increased the legislation to make it really difficult which has made it really difficult for small producers who like uh, are selling salad greens in the market to do that because of the washing requirements and the packaging requirements. It's become really, really difficult. So, and, and that's actually a project that the Food Sovereignty Alliance worked on to try and minimise those increases in legislations and make them appropriate for small producers as well as big producers. Mm, so I guess if you're looking at 
government sort of changes. You could introduce a new tier of, of, of farming, I suppose, with its separate rules from the industrial. Yeah, that ideally that would be what we need to do, but at the moment it, 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 it's... Uh, in Victoria, it's starting to happen, um, and the Food Sovereignty Alliance is very Victoria-centric, especially at the moment with everything that's going on down there. They're really seeing <laughs> yes. huge, huge impact on local food markets. Um, but they have worked really well. The, the government departments down there are working really well with the Food Sovereignty Alliance to try and make more scale-appropriate legislations. And hopefully we can start to bring that once we have a model into other states as well. Hmm. It's interesting. I've, I've been puzzling over this this sovereignty word in relation to food and, and all sorts of different things. So in my mind, sovereignty in the political sense is the ability to create and enforce rules for your own community. But I suppose food sovereignty is more on a personal level, is it? Um, it's the ability to... Look, it's a really highly charged word. <laughs> It's, it's a difficult one, um, and everyone has their own interpretation, I think, of what is their sovereignty, whether and is it is it about rights, um, is it about power and authority, is, is it, it's, it's a really word. <laughs> it's a very broad and not particularly well-defined concept, isn't is it? it? Is it the freedom to, to, you know, make your own informed choices when not be limited in... Um, what you can do to provide for yourself. Yeah, I think... That would be part I, of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's also being redefined in terms of, of people's rights rather than just um, a sovereign's rights hmm. or, or, or the right of a sovereign over people. Um, I guess that, that's the root of the word, but it is changing in recent years to be more of a people's word as in people should have sovereignty over their own choices, over their own decisions. Yes, around. So people become the sovereign of their own choices. Exactly, mm. yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Rather than someone sovereign over them. Yes, <laughs> yes, rather than an external sovereign who may not have their best interest as hard. Oh, dearie me. I yeah. was wondering whether to open that swamp there yeah. or not, but yeah. that's good, that's good. Thank you. I think we've, we've got one step further on yeah. the, on the I, long I mean, road my, to sovereignty. Yeah, my, my sense is what, what we're really talking about here is people have been disconnected from the food being grown. Like this is one thing we've seen during COVID and all their renewed interest in gardening and just renewed interest in anything to do with food production is that, you know, people have just completely been out of the loop. They, they haven't had any involvement maybe other than the very end production of producing a meal from commercially bought food. And suddenly they're discovering that, you know, there's a whole um, fascinating journey of how their food got to their plate and they want to be part of it. Yeah, and I think, uh, and so many of them, Realise how tenuous our, our our supermarket system can be at times of crisis, and wanted to learn more about how to support themselves from their own home, from their own garden, and understand um, more about producing food as well as where where other where external food is coming from. I mean, there was a, a very distressing video I just saw the other day about commercial honey production. And you think, you know, commercial honey production is just going to be just more hives and, and you know, more people in white beekeeping suits, you know, harvesting from the hives. And it was just horrific. It was, I don't even know how to describe it. It was the 
decimation of the, the bees in order to harvest the honey. And with no, um, no respect for the bees or the, the hives or the colony, it was just this mass production of um, basically de- destroying the very thing that was producing your substance. Sounds <laughs> uh, familiar, yeah, doesn't it? But it was just, you know, I'm sure every, every um, producer at that me- mega scale is probably doing something similar in order to, to operate at that level. But it just for some reason I thought it wasn't quite happening to honeybees, but, <laughs> but it is. So, you know, just seeing that, you know, that alone would make me never, ever buy commercial honey again. It would make sure, and I don't, but I would always want to see people buying from, you know, their local beekeepers, their small-scale um, honey producers, the, you know, also that having eating, consuming honey that is um, harvested in your region also is better for your immune system because there's apparently a whole thing around the pollen and, and the area where you live helping you with a histamine reaction. So there's so many health benefits as well, but you've got this, um, you know, this, this sense of not only wanting to support your local growers and producers, but understanding that um, the damage that's done when you don't. Yes, and I, I think, honestly, anywhere where we've seen a product become a commercial product, we've seen it industrialised in some way and and that industrial process has led to the damage or the destruction of either the product you're creating or the environment around it, which is really sad in our current society. But we're saying, seeing really, really good things in change, and especially like you look at honey producers in urban areas these days, and there's so many of them, and you can almost anywhere you go in Australia buy honey that's produced not only in your region but in your suburbs. Like uh, in, uh, I was in Melbourne last year and at a, a local market where they were selling the urban um, honey the, um, from, from a group that was creating urban honey and each jar of honey had the suburb in which the honey came from, where it was, where it was oh, made. What a beautiful idea. It was lovely. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even Parliament House has got its own hives, is not it? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Parliamentary honey. Yes. <laughs> Apparently it's very expensive. It's given to dignitaries when they visit. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. Um, oh, I had something great to yeah. say there. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just go back to what Scotty was saying earlier about, you know, describing what commercial chicken farming is like compared to, you know, and we're talking free... Uh, free range, not just free run. Where I think free run can just be within, still within a barn you know, situation, barn or no sunlight. And free range is when they're actually out there scratching in the dirt in the pasture. I mean, you know, if a child is looking at an egg and they understand how that egg came to be in their hand, and even better if the chickens are in their own backyard. But you know that that that's going to change the consciousness around food. And you know, I'm a great believer in that. You know, when you eat food that's produced with care and love it it's just better for you you know like it, it, you can't beat the nutrition of food that's produced that way compared to something that's mass produced on a commercial level cutting every cost you can to maximize your profit for your shareholders mm. Mm. yep yep i agree with you i have nothing <laughs> to add to that <laughs> so um in the u.s I, I keep hearing about things called food deserts um do you want to explain the concept of food deserts and then uh, yeah tell us if there's a lot of that going on in australia um in australia yes it's not just in the u.s so a food desert is where people cannot access fresh food because uh, they live too far from from where it is 
uh, produced in, or sold, or uh, they don't have the the financial resources to to purchase. So, I, I, th- I think it's a I don't know the exact definition, but it's a pretty wide concept in that um, it, it's it's access as well, uh, physical access as well as financial access, and um, how well off a person is. In Australia, we see this mostly in um, in rural communities, and I know a lot of people who have worked in outback communities around Australia where to buy fresh produce, even if it is available, can be up to 10 to 15 times the cost of what we would pay in, um, in an urban area, and it would be uh, a much lower quality because it's had to be transported so far. And there isn't the support and the resources for people to be able to have access to space to grow their own food, perhaps, or the water that's needed to grow that food or um, the finance that's needed to buy the seed and cultivate the land. It's, it's just really people have access to packaged food. They have food they can eat, but it might not have a very good nutritional content, therefore they're living in a food desert. Mm. They're getting calories, but they're not getting nutrition. Mm. It's interesting, just at the very beginning of the show, before we had you on, there was um, another interview going on there, and it was talking about this very issue about um, predominantly um, Indigenous communities that um, had very limited access to fresh food, and the cost of the food was so high, and they were talking about it in relation to, um, you know, cutting of the uh, job seeker allowance um, that's happening at the end of September and they were saying that you know it's creating a situation where these people with the, um, the COVID supplement were finally able to buy nutritious food and that now we're going back to what you're just describing which is not being able to afford food that has nutrition uh, you know they said it was approximately 15 times more to buy food in some of these communities than in um, say in a city location so you know, yes. your one dollar banana is now twelve dollars or whatever. Yes, for a banana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it honestly, in a, in a developed country such as ours, it it, it shouldn't be happening. Well, you know, we we should have the resources as a country to be able to support programs to bring fresh food into all areas of our community. We have we grow some of the best food in the world in this country, and quite a lot of it that gets um uh, exported all around the world, well, not so much at the moment, but there is really no reason why we can't find the programs, build the programs to ensure that all areas of Australia get fresh produce and nutritious food. Yeah. About a year ago, we had um, a guest on who was um, specialising in aquaponic farming, and one of his fabulous incentives was to set up aqua- aquaponic farming systems in these remote communities, in the food desert communities, because he was um, teaching the local community how to do this. And it sounds um, contra- contradictive, but the our water required for aquaponic farming was actually considerably less than for arable land farming. Mm. And it was amazing. He was able to produce a lot more fresh food with a lot less water um, in a much, much smaller space. Like you didn't require the, the amount of land to do this. Um, and it was just, you know, phenomenal. You're having a complete system where you not only had 
the vegetables you were growing, but you also then had the fish as a source of protein. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was amazing that the success he was having, and he was doing it through the flying doctors. So he was going out with the flying doctors to remote areas and helping to set up um, these uh, aquaponic farms. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. I think um, maybe our governments should get behind some, resourcing some of these projects mm-hmm. rather than individuals and not-for-profit organisations. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's a lot of options. And a lot of different ways that we could um, improve the quality of food in our communities. So I guess, to my mind, the the problem is pretty much what Zena put her finger on earlier, in that um, the industrial model of producing anything, you basically call for a bunch of investors, then you're beholden to the investors to pay back their their investment at a certain amount of growth, and, and if you don't achieve that, you'll be sort of spat out and, and chunded up and sold. Um, so whatever you're doing has to grow at an unrealistic rate and it sort of winds up destroying whatever it is you're doing to provide that profit. Now, Canberra City Farm's a great example, the Kitchen Co-op's another great example, and, and Southern Harvest as well is, is another organisation that's really fighting that model of, of doing things and, and bringing producers and, and customers together in, in a very short loop so that you can actually know and... and, and form a community and, and trust the people who are producing your own food. Can you tell us a little bit about Southern Harvest? Yeah, sure. Um, Southern Harvest was, is uh, a conduit, really, to to connect consumers, eaters. Um, it's not only food, it's fibre as well, so wool and yarn, and allow people to access farmers directly, to be able to completely shorten that food supply chain and go to their local farm and say, what's available? What can I buy from you? And finding the ways that is best for the consumers to do that and the farmers uh, that suits them as well. Like we did a whole series of research early on, which is still live on our website, where people could indicate for them how, how they wanted to access local food and how producers could indicate how they wanted to get their local food to market or their local product to market. And we found that the number one answer when we first started doing this research was farmer's market, which is why that's where we started our focus with Southern Harvest and setting up the Bungendore Farmer's Market because there wasn't one here. We also did a Queanbeyan Farmer's Market for a while and we have worked with other regions to support them setting up farmer's markets as well. And the second one was produce boxes, which we initiated three years ago. The way we are... Doing that is aggregating produce that might otherwise not have been sold. So after the it's the the third line after farmers have decided how they want to sell their produce, whether they're taking it to market, whether they're putting it in their own boxes, whether they're value adding it, what they have left at the end that may not be sold otherwise gets aggregated with lots of other farms and put into boxes so it doesn't get wasted. And the third one was retail outlets. How do we support? Uh, farmers to have their product in retail outlets around the region. Um, and so those three methods have helped to increase the the, the, the access to local food in, in our region. In the last year or so, Southern Harvest itself purchased, um, as a not-for-profit, we purchased the produce from the farmers, put it into our produce boxes or in our community market stalls and sell it back to the community. Um, 
we put $175,000 into farmers' pockets in the last financial year through those two schemes. Um, and it's been really, really successful. We've had a number of our farmers now who are, are moving more and more of their business to this model because it also frees them up to do more farming. They don't have to worry about the administration of uh, a produce box scheme. They don't have to worry about being up at 6am to go to the markets when they've got to also water all of their plants and feed all their stock. They can just um, put their value-added products into our community members stall and our now online community members stall and not have to go to the markets at 6am in the morning <laughs> every single weekend. Um, so it's been really, really useful. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's certainly been uh, been kicking a few goals. I mean, I know this one organic local farm has been going for 25 years with its own sort of box delivery scheme. It's just just transferred completely over to the uh, the Southern Harvest box scheme. So definitely yeah. definitely attractive to producers. Yeah. It, it has been. Um, yes, that producer was the second person to transfer their subscribers into the scheme. Just like I said, finding that. It, it takes so much time away from farming for farmers to have to administer a box scheme, to have to do all of their deliveries, um, whereas in this way it, it's sort of outsourcing the administration but in a community way there's a whole lot of producers that are all working together to bring their products into one place and, and make it easier for themselves, easier for the customers, you know, more variety because... Not one farm can grow enough variety at all times to maybe give the consumers what they want. So it it is a cooperation in many ways. <laughs> and does this make food more affordable? So one of the challenges we we're talking about just a few minutes ago was just the cost of accessing, you know, fresh, nutritious food for some people is really challenging. And then, you know, even if you're not living in a remote community, just, you know, what going through COVID has demonstrated is that you increase the, the welfare payment and suddenly people can buy food, you know, <laughs> you know before they're, they're not, they're going without so their kids can have food and that sort of thing. So, you know, would, would having food produced in this manner, would it make it you know, more um, accessible cost-wise for people on lower incomes? I think so. They get more produce for their money because it doesn't have to travel as far. There isn't the overheads of transport um, and food that's out of season because everything is in season, which tends to make it more affordable as well. Um, we also provide some options for people who may not be able to afford the full cost or any of the cost of the food whereby they can volunteer their time in exchange for their produce box because our entire scheme basically is is now uh, packed and distributed by volunteers and those volunteers get their produce box free each week. We, we saw a huge increase in demand with COVID not only for the produce but also um, in, in the time it, that was needed to put everything together when we had such uh, increase in our hygiene and safety requirements. So we needed we went from needing four or five volunteers a week to between 16 and 20 volunteers a week to uh, keep the scheme running and all of them get their produce for free. Um, we also have a pay-it-forward option where if, if you are in a high-income bracket and you want to pay for someone else's produce, who can't afford it, 
we do that also. And anything that's excess is donated to um, shelters and charities that can get the produce to people who might otherwise not have access to it. Mm. That's wonderful. And what sort of increase in volume of um, food going out during COVID did you see? Like, are we talking like triple or double or...? Uh, I went from one or two inquiries a week to 40 inquiries a week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Slight increase. (laughs) It was a slight increase. We, we, the first couple of months, we took our scheme to what our capacity was at the time. We went from about 70 to 120 subscribers in the first couple of months just at, and that was where we felt our capacity was at that time and we shut our subscriptions. Um, you and, and toilet paper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of people asking if they could buy toilet paper with their produce boxes. <laughs> we, um, we've since been trying to build the scheme because we have a large waiting list now. So we had to shut the subscriptions, but we continue to take on um, people onto a waiting list and as we build the produce, we provide boxes on an ad hoc basis to the waiting list and take on subscribers as we feel we have the capacity now. And that just shows you just how valuable what you're doing is. You know, people have also had the realisation of how important having access to fresh food is. And there was, you know, shortages of some things. Like food was not necessarily in shortage, but um, I think that put people in a mindset of just, oh, I, I don't know how to take care of this if it's no longer available on the shelf. They don't know Mm. where to get it from. The other thing that I saw had happened in um, North America in some of the food desert um, areas was that a lot of the people who had been relying on um, processed packaged foods, because that's all there was, didn't actually know a lot about cooking. Um, There was a real shortage in knowledge around, okay, here's a box of fresh vegetables. Now what do you do to make this into a nutritious meal? You know, it's always come packaged and prepared and and you just heat it up in a saucepan. Now you've got fresh food. So one of the incentives that they came up with um, in some of the community gardens was to actually put together um, affordable recipes for people on low incomes to make nutritious meals based on what they could access from the community gardens or from from their areas and it would be based on okay these these all these meals you can make for under a dollar a meal or all these meals you can make for you know for your family for family four for under three dollars that sort of thing is there any um thought about maybe with the container kitchen going in that direction and doing some um you know like affordable cooking for people and how to take this fresh produce and, and make these nutritious, healthy meals in a very cost-effective way. Yeah, I definitely think there is the opportunity for that. And um, maybe not so much in, in, in our community because Canberra is quite an affluent area and um, most of the people who subscribe to the program would have the resources to, if they didn't know how to cook, you know, find the information online or in in um, in recipe books. But we do have uh, a group, um, which is the producers and the the consumers, an online group where they can discuss the products they have available and what to do with them and how best to use them, which has been really really successful because it's great because the producers can be on there as well and. The subscribers can ask the producer, oh, you gave us this thing in the box this week. What do we do with it? We've never seen or heard of it before. You know, <laughs> What are we going to cook with this? And and the producers who have been growing it for years, assuming, well, many of them have been growing for years, 
will will have some really great recipe ideas. And 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 that's been we I feel we have a really good community around the produce boxes and sharing those ideas. But definitely, we would like to um, use the kitchen to get people together to cook together to when we can gather again <laughs> in groups. Um, learn what to do with their produce, yeah. Mm. It sounds like you'll be doing a lot of turnip recipes from what you said earlier. <laughs> I've, told the, I've told the growers we don't want any more turnips. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Turnips are one of those things that will really hard to fail and it'll it'll grow in that early spring period when a lot of the other things have just finished. Yeah. Yep. They're a great crop. And, look, honestly, there is lots of really good ways to cook them and eat them and I just think it's one of those vegetables that doesn't do well in a supermarket therefore it's not something that people are really familiar with so um, there's a number of vegetables like that that grow really well in our climate but you'll never find them in the supermarket so people don't know them and they're a bit tentative to use them but they're getting better. (laughs) Now one of my favourite Chinese foods um, from Yum Cha is actually fried turnip cake it's just the most delicious thing and they, they yeah. just grate up turnips like we do potatoes and they make them into a, a, a patty with other things, obviously. But it was just, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of turnips until I had that. So I don't know, maybe a, lot of, a lot of fried turnip came <laughs> showing that up. That was one year. of the recipes that was very popular this year. Oh, yeah. you're kidding. Okay, <laughs> yeah. wonderful. That, that we I think the, the Chinese name for it is lobago, is what they call mm. it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, you mentioned that um, you've, you've got tons of inquiries for... Uh, for customers who'd like to get involved with the box scheme um, and you've, you've sort of run out of farmers, is that right? Um, we've actually been very lucky just in the last few weeks to have a couple of new farmers come on board so we are able to um, hopefully open up. We're looking to open up another... Um, we're, we're taking on 20 subscribers for spring which covers um, one... Like you said, we have one of our producers who is um, uh, not doing their boxes anymore and they've offered that to their subscribers. So we've, got, we've opened those 20 places for them. Any of those subscribers who don't choose to move across, we can then take from the waiting list to fill those 20 places for spring. And we're hoping, it, hoping to open another between 30 and 50 for summer, depending on how the growing season shapes up. But with this nice rain we're getting, I think it'll be a good and hopefully a good summer. Yeah, it's a good start. It's a good start. Mm. So I guess you're looking at this in the in the context of what is it, well over four hundred thousand people in Canberra. It's really a drop in the ocean. Um, yeah. So how do you reckon we can transfer over towards being able to actually feed all of these people locally? It's a massive jump in scale, isn't it? Would your box scheme be able to be replicated or? Definitely, and we are discussing it with a number of groups um, around Australia who are looking at replicating similar schemes with their local farming groups. Um, I think I don't think we can. I don't think we can fill the current demand for food with local food unless people start to demand local food. I think. I think it's a supply and demand issue. The supply of local food is not there because the demand is not there. And we've, we've had this for years with setting up little farmer's markets is unless people want to buy from farmer's markets, they're going to fail. So we need 
and we're seeing it. I think we are seeing a more of a demand in this country for shorter supply chains across the entire country. And so the demand is increasing for local food, in which means it can grow as an industry. And we'll start to see more... Um, in the UK was that every borough or every sort of um, smaller part of the community had its own weekly farmer's market. So you'd literally walk out of your door down the street and there was a farmer's market once or twice a week. Yeah. And it was uh, so normalised that there were also bigger markets that you could go to, you know, that had more selections and lots of maybe, um, you know, more perishable foods like fish and meat. But, um, yeah, ev- everybody could, within their own, literally their own suburb or their own borough, go out and walk maybe half a kilometre at the most and they'd be at a, their own local farmer's market weekly. Yeah. So is that... I think, so, sorry, Ruth, go ahead. Uh, you see that so much in the UK, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa. Like, local markets are the heart of their food supply chain. Um, and... But we don't do it well in Australia. I think, honestly, there's a big opportunity to do that better in Australia. Why do you think that is? Um, I, well, we're such a big country and so much of it is spread out. And we, we've really developed an, a dependence on, on large-scale industrial farming and I think that has led to a, a dependence on large-scale industrial food distribution and the supermarket model. Um, we've moved a long way from, well, also possibly because uh, the the colonial culture in this country developed, it, it, it's like the culture that Australians, in inverted commas, have is, is quite young. It, it, the, the, it's a migrant population, uh, the colonial population. It, it never developed that historical, like Europe and the UK within... Um, more farming historically it went from you know straight into this colonial model and big farms really that mm. I don't I just don't think we have the history and perhaps perhaps we need to create a new narrative yeah, yeah. Mm. well I was thinking because we are quite um, a young country that's probably part of it where we didn't have centuries of this you know being normalized but I had also wondered, because having lived in another colonial country, which is cold climate, I thought maybe it was merely climate. And we had such, you know, conducive climates to growing food here for longer periods of the year that I was really surprised that we didn't have more markets and, and you know, more of that um, sort of in close proximity to where we lived. Mm, I reckon Ruth's, Ruth's nailed it pretty yeah. well with the history, because if yeah. you think of... Uh, England and a lot of Europe, it's, it's settled so that the villages are sort of one day's walk apart, basically, mm. and they've been settled for forever. Um, so people are staying there and, of course, when there was no fossil fuels for transport, you would just grow your food locally and people would do that. Yeah, put it on your cart yeah. and wheel it down the road for Whereas a mile. here the, the town started a day's ride away yeah. from each other with a horse yeah. and cart. And, and since the industrial uh, internal combustion engine and road systems and service stations have all been developed, then, um, yeah, even those mid, mid-towns have disappeared a lot. So, yeah, interesting, isn't it? So how do we get people um, asking for this then? You, like you said, the demand is the key. So how, how do we create this demand? What, what would help get people asking for this? Well, I think... I think it's becoming 
more and more available and people probably need to be more active in their food choices. It's, it's so easy to just head down the supermarket and buy all the things you need in one place. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit harder to get out there and research where your local farmers are, where there's a, is there a CSA nearby that you can um, subscribe to as community-supported agriculture. Where, and there's so many of them popping up now. It, it's becoming really, really common, not only for fruit and vegetables, but for meat, for grains, for pulses. For, it's, there's, there's lots of different options. Um, and we do... We probably have a capacity around this region to supply a lot of the food to Canberra. It just wouldn't be what people are used to. So people are needing to probably change change how they cook, how they eat, um, make it more seasonal. Be willing, be willing to be open to different foods. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think there's one one cure or one panacea for the situation. Mm. It 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 it, do, it is going to take work on people's part to change how they view their food and and how and how they cook and how they eat. Mm. Um, but I think I think we are really starting to see the change. It's it's the first time been working in this industry now for a number of years that I've seen a real obvious um, sudden change in how people are viewing their food systems and wanting to access their food systems. Um, and there's a number of groups popping up online like, um, well, not popping up, they've been there for a while, but they, over the last couple of months have become a lot more active like the Open Food Network, which provides a platform for producers to sell their product online and a platform for consumers to go searching for what's available in their area online um, it, it, that is, it specifically focuses on small farming and produce and, and on a regional basis. And on there is lots of CSAs and lots of food cooperatives and, and small farmers as well. So there's more and more of those easily accessible platforms, but people have to go looking for them. They have to make a conscious choice to, I'm not going to go down to the supermarket every week. I'm going to have a look at what else is available in my local area and support that avenue, therefore increasing the demand for those products locally. Yeah, yeah and I've, I've noticed as well, there's been a really big upsurge recently in, in different groups who are looking at a regional solution to providing localised food systems as well. I know the, the Regional Development Authority for the ACT is looking into that quite closely. Um, Co-ops, Commons and Communities, Canberra is, is developing a, a regional food cooperative um, mm. idea which fit into all of these things that we've been talking about and, and help them to network and, and benefit each other even more. And I think the Climate Change Justice Party's got a very... They're a new party. They've got a very heavy focus on, on localising the food system as well. So it looks like there's a there's an upsurge in systematic regional food systems as well. How do you reckon that the local... What the steps that have been made so far, like Southern Harvest, like City Farm and the farmers' markets and everything, how, how well-placed are they to be able to cope with that increased interest to such a different scale? Uh, I think this is really, really complex. And for me personally, the thing that I find so frustrating about a lot of this is 
there is so many places where the same thing is being replicated. And it would be ideal, I think, for all of these groups to get together in their in their um, in their regions and see who's doing what and how they could each complement each other rather than replicating the behaviours of another. So another um, another co-op. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, maybe not a co-op, but cooperation. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I, I personally feel a great frustration being involved with a number of different groups, both on um, it, it happens on regional scale, it happens on a country scale, it happens on a, an international scale. Is um, is not enough communication and collaboration between those groups? I think I think that that is where the key is. Personally, I think if if they all got together and worked out how they could complement each other. Um, it would be a lot more successful faster. Like they're successful now. Like definitely the change is happening. It's 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 in the wind, so to speak. It's really really happening. But it could happen more efficiently and faster uh, if they work together closer. Mm, yep. I guess that just needs everyone to have the same amount of time at the same time. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say that one of the beautiful things that came out of the forced um, lockdowns and COVID was that it created time in other areas Mm. for people. That's how people have discovered all these alternative ways of doing things and desire to do it that way, you know. And I I think people really don't want to choose to purchase highly processed, you know, big agro foods, but it's time, right? Definitely. You're juggling time, so perhaps that's the key: is that we've come out of that with better understanding of how to allocate our time, where where the true value lies in allocating our time. All right, we've run out of time, pretty much. Is there, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add before we go, Ruth? No, thank you for having me. It's been great discussion. Yeah, oh, yeah, great, wonderful. Well, so, thanks we're just, for coming. Yeah, we'll just mention again um, your uh, email address. So it's H G mcommunity at gmail.com if you want to find out more about the Container Kitchen Co-op. And we've been speaking with Ruth Gaha-Morris. Wonderful to have her chatting today about the Container Kitchen Co-op. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at BehindTheLines98.3 at gmail.com. 
and see 2XFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au that's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.